come to America, 13, work your butt off? Do you? You're listening to In Good Company with Hugh Byrne, a podcast about living consciously, making healthy choices, cultivating the power of awareness, and bringing mindfulness to our work and our lives. Our guest today is Martin Mayorga. Martin is the founder and president at Mayorga Organics which is just completing 20 years from being founded, 1997 to 2017. The purpose of Mayorga Organics is to eliminate systemic poverty in Latin America through responsible trade of organic products. So we'll talk about that in a minute. I just want to say that for myself, I feel very very much connected to what you're doing. My own background is that I worked most of the 80s and 90s on human rights issues, particularly around Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua. I actually wrote my dissertation at UCLA on the conflict in El Salvador and, and wrote a book on that. So the alleviation of poverty and working for peace and justice in that region and more broadly is, is very much, very close to my heart. So I've a great respect for what your vision is and your goals are. So welcome, Martin, and love if you could begin just by talking about that vision, your purpose of eliminating systemic poverty, and maybe then we could kind of step back to kind of your journey, how you kind of moved in that direction and ended up where you are now. Yeah, it's definitely a lofty purpose, one that I didn't know I had probably till I was in my late 30s. So there was a lot of iterations beforehand as I evolved as a person. But yeah, it really comes back to my childhood and growing up in these countries, which is my uh, origin story, if you will, for how we got to where we are now. You would have been born just before the Sandinista revolution, would you? Or I was. I was actually born in Guatemala, though. Okay. Um, just my parents were there temporarily. So I was born there in 73 in Guatemala, which was interesting because it was just before, I think, one of the biggest earthquakes in the Western Hemisphere in That's 75. Right. Yeah. So we left from the earthquake into Nicaragua, where my father was from, and uh, walked right into the revolution, went through that for a few years, didn't go to school and just kind of lived through what seemed normal to me at the time because when you're a child, whatever you see around you is normal. And then we bounced around Costa Rica, Peru, and then the U.S. That's kind of a very um, intense time. I remember I first got involved around 1980 little after the Sandinista revolution in 79 and particularly involved in working around El Salvador and going down there quite a lot in that in that period. Growing up, how did you move towards your concern? It sounds like a concern with justice and alleviation of poverty. Was it from your own experience? Was it seeing the lives of people around you that inspired that? Was it your family was kind of oriented in that direction already? Yeah, I think ultimately when I look back at it, my dad definitely had it in him. And, you know, he was a guy who at 16 left, he was raised by a single mother and it was him and his brother. He lived in a little town in, Monag- in Nicaragua, uh, left to the U.S. To, just to learn English and find a better opportunity. And he really found his opportunity through education, coming to the U.S., learning English, 
putting himself through school, ended up going to Georgetown, Harvard, Yale, got his PhD. And so his, his escape or his opportunity creation was through education. Mm-hmm. And then he really leveraged that to try to help the people of Nicaragua in the best ways he knew and in the best ways he could as a basically a U.S. educated economist, which was a very difficult time to do so when the country was changing hands between you know, the communist structure and more of a capitalist structure. So it was, I think, seeing that, which I didn't recognize until I was older, that that really had a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. And then also my own experiences. I think very young, I was very aware of this kind of lottery that we have of where we're born puts us in a path and yeah. a path that has certain doors that are open, certain doors that aren't. And I kind of noticed at a very young age that it was literally a matter of feet between where I was born physically and where other kids were born. And they were working, you know, every morning they'd wake up and collect wood and go sell in the market just to get by. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to be born in a place where there was a home and there was food and there were things that, you know, you had the basics. So I think I noticed that pretty early on in just my day-to-day experiences. Did you grow up with a strong sense of community or was it more kind of nuclear family? Were you connected a lot with, with community? No, unfortunately, mm. because... You traveled a lot. You moved yeah, around a lot. There was, uh, there was more chaos in my upbringing. Than, and, you know, I see it more as a, a dynamic childhood than a chaotic childhood. But um, yeah, I think there was just in, in the nuclear family and as well as outside of it, there was just a lot of what could be seen as chaos. And I kind of see now as just a dynamic environment. But yeah, I mean, when you live in a country and the capital goes down in an earthquake and then you go to another country, to a revolution, another country where, you know, we were in Costa Rica for about a year and then most Nicaraguans were asked to leave because everybody went to Costa Rica. And then we went to Peru during the Shining Path days and that was interesting. So seeing a lot of dynamic activities around me was the norm, which in in, in hindsight was very good. I think it made me struggle a lot through my high school days and I went to about three high schools and struggled as a student. And once the dust settled, you know, in my early, early 20s, I think I used that more for the betterment of what I was trying to do. So you went to Georgetown for your bachelor's and and what was the journey towards setting up the um, Mayorga um, Coffee Company or Mayorga Organics? Was that you alone? Was it with siblings or family? Or? It was really me, and it started more out of necessity than anything. It was really two things. It was passion and necessity. I started going back to Nicaragua in 1991 with my dad after Violeta Chamorro was elected the first Democratic president in a long time. And it was just such a sense of, there's two things that hit me. Number one, the kind of nostalgia of having been there growing up. And I spent a lot of time with my dad traveling up and down and going to the cigar factories and kind of some of the more interesting parts of the country. And then this almost feeling of, it was like the Wild West. I mean, everybody was armed. It was kind of dangerous. It was, but it was interesting to me because it was so different than what I'd gotten used to in the short period of time that I'd lived in the States. I mean, it was only maybe seven years, eight years maybe, between the time I came here to the D.C. area and actually went back to Nicaragua. But I'd worked so hard to become Americanized that I'd forgotten that part of my background. But there was just, A, it felt like home. It felt comfortable. It felt natural to me. And B, it was just exciting. You know, I'm not one for structure, systems, and processes. And, you know, when you go down there, there's not much of that. So, you know, at least back then, now it's changed a lot. So I think it really intrigued me. And then it opened up my eyes to the fact that here I'd worked my way into one of the more prestigious universities in the country and had tremendous opportunities. And then I went back and I saw that nothing had really changed there. And if anything, things had gotten worse, you know, after all the wars and all the issues. So I was at a crossroads in my life where here I was trying to work super hard to pay my way through school to go to Wall Street and be this guy making all this money in New York. And then going back and seeing, you know, kind of getting hit in the face again with the things I had seen as a kid. And so it really put me in this kind of like gut check moment of like, what do I really want to put my time and effort into? And that's, I actually started a cigar business as a result of that. 
more than anything because I felt like it was an opportunity to leverage the two worlds of taking pride in a country that I felt was a home to me and the people who actually did all this work to grow the tobacco, to make the tobacco, and then taking advantage of the opportunities we have in this country, which are tremendous, which maybe, especially nowadays, people don't see because of the limited awareness of their context of just the history of this country. But coming from a country like Nicaragua and then seeing the opportunities here was just too big for me not to try to do something. So I started the cigar business out of, I guess, the connection back to where I was from, but also the desperation of trying to figure out how to pay for Georgetown, which I did on my own. And then and say a little, how, how did um, cigars lead to coffee? Physically, so tobacco grows in valleys and coffee grows up in the mountains. So I would always, when I was in tobacco land, which is the northern part of Nicaragua, always saw the coffee and I meet people and you talk to people. And I was talking to a gentleman I call my uncle, but he's a very close family friend of friend of my father's, who was explaining the struggle he was having. This was in the mid-90s. He had gotten his farm back from the Sandinistas, had cleaned up all the title issues and everything. Had a big farm and just couldn't make a go of it. Just said, you know, I just can't make money. I'm like, what do you mean? You grow all this coffee? The Americans pay all this money for coffee. He said, well, here's how it works. And he literally, on a napkin, he drew the supply chain. He said, I grow the coffee. I don't have enough trucks to take it to the mill, so they send people here, they pay me this, and he kind of walked me through the structure. And you know, I'm 20 years old, and I'm looking, I'm like, that's just stupid. You know, just send the coffee to the U.S., sell it to a roaster, and make a lot of money. And that's really how I got into it. I said, well, A, I can help you out, and B, I can help myself pay through school. Yeah. So again, it was that kind of connection to try to do the right thing and help others, and also help myself in a time where I was trying to make my way in life. So we started shipping uh, green coffee containers uh, to the U.S. that I would sell into roasters here on the East Coast. And we had a deal where we would have a, a share of whatever difference he would have made between what we sold out and what he would have. We had a split, and it worked out. It was so easy. You know, now there's a whole, you know, the name Direct Trade, and it's a whole big marketing thing. To me, it was just common sense. And this was back in the mid-'90s. Was it organics from the beginning, or did no, that come later? the organic was a big, slow lessons that we learned. We did get into organics early because I always believed in it. I just started getting tired of going back to the farms and seeing people who lived on these farms having to dress like they were getting ready for a nuclear holocaust to go spray their own farms where they lived. That to me was just, it didn't make sense. Like this is food, this is food people are consuming. These are farms where people live and raise their children. Hmm. They're at the top of the mountains where the river actually, you know, the rain goes into the river water. It was just made no sense. So after a few years of really seeing that, I said, you know, we can't participate in that. So we broke out of conventional and, and really focused on organic. Was that before the wave of organic here or i mean was it already it already begun it was way before we we've been ahead of our times unfortunately many times because we've actually been ahead on on some opportunities that maybe the market wasn't ready for but we started selling organic coffee in 2001 and to their credit costco supported us always and i think in 2003 we put organic coffee in costco and that's probably part of the reason why we're so successful with those guys yeah, for me, it's, and that's kind of a, a reality of also the responsibility I feel as a business person for what decisions we make. So for me, anything non-organic, just I wouldn't feel good making money doing it. So you've got at least kind of three things going on at the same time, it seems to me. You've, you've got the organic, the benefit, environmental, health, etc. benefit of organic. You've got the decent wages, income to the growers. And you've got obviously selling a, a decent product, but you're also, you're a business person and you're making a living and you're making, you know, it, so it's working. It sounds like it's working kind of win, 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 or maybe more wins than I'm even seeing. But do you see it in that way that everybody can benefit 
from this yeah, approach. Yeah, I think, uh, and it's funny because we literally changed the, the writing on the back of our bags, and it ends with, you know, our model is a win-win-win model. I mean, the farmer has to come out ahead, we have to come out ahead, and the consumer has to come out ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think even in some of the, the better-looking models in the market, it's usually a two-out-of-three scenario. Like meatloaf, right? Yeah. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's hard, you know, and I think it's, it's a balance and it's not easily recognized by the consumer because a lot of things we do are behind the scenes, working to get proper pre-harvest financing for farmers, working to help them improve some of their infrastructure, purposely not having investors, purposely not working with banks because we know that their interests lie in maximizing profitability at the expense of not only farmers, but also consumers, because a lot of people will tell a good story about the farmer in order to get more out of the consumer. And that's where I think you get two out of three wins. You know, I think our models worked for 20 years because we do very well by the farmer, we do well for the consumer, and that ends up benefiting us as well. You were saying before that you're, um, when we were talking before, that your, your model currently isn't focused on the retail end of it. Tell us what it it's, is focused on. I mean, what it's it's obviously the relationship with the growers and the, the producers and the moving the product. What is the business, kind of the overall model, just sort of it's, sketching it? Well, it's selling to the retailers. I think maybe giving you a little background would help in the fact that we took the same route. You know, it's funny. When I look at where the industry is today on the smaller scale, we were there 15 years ago. People believe we have to build shops and we have to run these shops to have a brand. And, you know, we had 12 shops at one point and we had about 1,200 headaches behind it. We had insurance and liability. I mean, everything that comes along with retail shops. And I realized that coffee wasn't even our top 10 items that we were selling. It was milk and pastries and sandwiches. Mm-hmm. And so what we did was we started phasing out of the retail because... I always wanted to maintain the focus on creating market for the farmers and creating opportunity for the farmers. And another big thing that we do that is kind of this gray area of heart is also having getting the farmers to have a little more dignity in the marketplace because I think that they're utilized as a tool for selling. They're utilized as a tool for maybe even people make feel good about themselves. And for me, it's more about engaging them as equals and engaging everybody along the supply chain as equals from the farmer to the consumer. So really our focus is on how do we work with these farmers with their assets, which is, they have a ton of assets. They have knowledge of the land, knowledge of the product and practices that they've learned for generations on how to grow coffee. Leveraging that, you know, we grow, we help them grow chia and we're working on honey projects and, and diversified products that will help them have a more portfolio approach into their products. And really, that's what excites me is getting down there and doing those things, developing those opportunities. And then we have our facility in Maryland, which is beautiful and massive and has all kinds of moving parts. And that's where we then take everything we've done well at Oregon and the opportunities we've created for farmers and realize them into the marketplace. So we pack our brand, we do private label manufacturing, we do distribution of all sorts. And so we, the manufacturing helps us achieve that and helps us move volume, which is where I believe that change will take place. You know, it's high quality, but it's also a high volume product. Are you, what, what countries are you working in with, with the direct producers in right now? We work in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, Bolivia, Colombia, Peru. El Salvador is off and on because unfortunately the ability to get quality, consistent organic product out of uh, El Salvador is challenging. And then we do something in Uganda that's obviously a lot farther than Latin America, but our focus is Latin America. And mostly for two reasons. Number one, culturally we feel most comfortable and capable there. And we're a very small company in the scheme of the industry and our reach is only so wide. We've realized that our strengths have to be really focused and honed in rather than trying to do everything. So linking what you're doing with the alleviation or ending of, of systemic poverty, 
I can see in my mind that ensuring that the direct producers have a, have a living wage, a good wage, good earnings, can look after their families, support vibrant, viable communities. Then you've got Tegucigalpa and Guatemala City and San Salvador, and you've got all of the rest of... How, does, how do you go from where you are to ending systemic poverty? You know, I think the key word there being systemic, and I think that the poverty in regards to agriculture in Latin America is a system, and one could argue it's a purposeful system that's created and fortified by the people who benefit from it, from big banks to the big trade houses to the multinationals. I mean, these are massive multi-billion dollar companies. And people think I'm crazy when I say this, but it's leftover colonialism. They still have their mills, they still, and these are people from, I mean, this is literally leftover colonialism still existing in Latin America. And there's a a Buckminster Fuller quote that we have in our, our wallet, our facility, it says, in order to make change, you can't improve the current system, you have it to create a new one. And I think I think anybody trying to work within the current system doesn't understand that the system only benefits those who gain the most, who really don't need the most to gain. And it's such a backward system because you're literally talking about the poorest people in the world. The poorest people in the world and some of the wealthiest entities in the world are actually taking advantage of their position to continue to actually build wealth. So for me, it's mostly just creating a structure that makes those people unnecessary. The traders, the brokers, the, even some of the banks. My philosophy with financing is it's, it's just a timing issue. We can work things out with customers. We can work things out with people within the trade. We can work outside of the banking system and support our farmers. And even if we don't, we can leverage our capacities as a U.S. company that's buying the product to really even just negotiate better terms from them. You know, we have producers who borrow money for pre-harvest financing at 22 to 24% interest. I mean, that alone is, nobody can get out of that. You know, and then we have something really interesting in our industry. And, and to be frank, I'm not a fan of the industry because because I think the industry as a whole is complicit in, in what's happening and doesn't do enough to change it. We have a concept called the lean months, where we know that coffee farmers literally for months have no money for food. And the industry answer is to create programs, you know, food for farmers and different things that are great. And, and you know, I appreciate their existence, but it really shouldn't have to exist because we as an industry need to see what is wrong with the system and how do we break out of it. So for me, it's just trying to do the right thing for everybody that's basically impacted by the product. And it, it's not just the farmers. People really think that we're hyper-focused on the farmers, but my focus is just as strong on consumers because I think consumers are getting ripped off, especially nowadays with all the different claims and all the different claims that a lot of companies are making from large to very small ones as well. So we're kind of in the middle trying to look out for everybody. Where that leads, I don't know. I mean, obviously the, the, big, the big goal is to alleviate systemic poverty. I think the reality is, is just educating people about it and educating people to actually care enough, which to be honest is, is very hard because people care about what affects them the most. You know, yeah. and these people in these faraway countries, maybe it's enough to see a sticker on a bag and feel good enough about it. So that's, that's a challenge. Do you, do you, have you got a lot of pushback from the, from the big, big boys and big girls? And the big, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not very well loved in that world and I'm not an industry guy. I've been in the industry for 20 years. I'm not I'm not in the industry as far as the kind of business social world and even the, the associations because I think the industry is just as big an issue in it as just the economic issues. I, I want to sh- make a bit of a shift just to kind of turning a little bit more inward and just kind of look at your own life and obviously you've talked a lot about your values. I'd be interested in hearing some about 
your how you deal with the challenges and ups and downs of things I mean have there been times when kind of almost goes without saying that there have been times where things have been really tough and rocky on the journey you've been on and assuming that that is the case how have you can you talk about that and how you know what's helped you what's helped you in the in the difficult times what have you found supportive you know, around you and in you that, that has helped you get through? We've had a lot of uh, ups and downs, a lot of downs. We've had a lot of challenges. And, you know, bu- building the company the way we believe in building it without the support of investors or the, the traditional means, there's definitely a lot of obstacles. I've been blessed, and as I was talking about earlier, with maybe some of the chaos and things that I saw growing up, I've always had an appreciation for just the basics of life. You know, for me, I always say, like, you know, if you're alive, you know, you have something to be happy about and you have something to appreciate. If you can walk, if you, you know, some of the basic things I really do just appreciate. So for me, maybe, and I don't like to think it's arrogance, but I think it's, I believe in myself enough and believe in what I care about and why I care about it enough to know that everything else is more just noise or maybe even challenges that are presented in front of me to help me improve and find better ways to do things. So I'm about as even keeled as you'll get, you know, as far as when times are terrible, when times are great. Sure, I celebrate, but the, the downtimes I see as an opportunity as well and just see how, okay, you know, I got myself into this mess. Where did I go wrong and what did I do better next time? And I always come out better for it. That's wonderful. That's great. I mean, we were talking with a, another guest about sharing a quote from um, Carlos Castaneda and Don Juan. He's talked about a, the spiritual warrior sees everything as a challenge and the everyday person sees it as a blessing or a curse. And that resonates with me that they, you know, seeing that kind of resilience. I mean, what you're speaking to sounds like somewhere in, on the spectrum of resilience or equanimity, kind of balance and and that must be, I mean, obviously, it's very, very supportive for you if you can go through the hard times. Yeah, and I think another thing that I took away from my childhood and maybe I learned from my dad was, you know, when you move around so much and there's so much, so many moving parts in your life and things always still end up okay, you realize you can fail here or not succeed there. Or do, everything will be okay as long as I'm obsessed with progress, moving forward and always taking that next step forward. So I think for me, as long as I can continue to do that, and nothing is really relevant. And I think another important aspect for me is that I'm not attached to anything material. So I think Mm. a lot of business people are overly focused on, you know, what if I lose this or that? Those aren't the things that actually motivate me or excite me or make me feel proud. I feel good when I see young staff evolve and grow and really kind of pursue their passions, even outside the company. I, I like seeing growth and evolution and touching that and actually being a catalyst to that. So for me, you can't take that from me. And so when, whether it's cash flow or, or market concerns, no one will take the essence of what we really do and why we do it. So it's it's a nice piece that we have, or at least I have. I can't speak for everybody else in the company, but it gives me a piece that will be okay no matter what. It's wonderful. It seems like a great philosophy and a great kind of attitude to life to have that knowledge that your own attitude really determines your well-being and your happiness, whatever the externals might be coming in at you, that you can meet it with some degree of balance. To the side and kind of in line with that, I'm wondering if you have daily life habits, practices that help you as well? Yeah, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I hear the work-life balance concept a lot, and I kind of feel that it's all kind of interwoven for me. I have certain things that I need in my personal life to feel that I'm making progress or at least like discipline for me. And I tell people all the time, inherently, I'm not a very hard driving person. I kind of create discipline in my life to do the whole fake it till you make it thing. And I'm still trying to figure out how to make it on that sense. But I have disciplines that I do put in front of myself that I think make me feel like 
I'm waking up every day to make progress. You know, I like to work out. I like to, you know, and I go through phases, to be honest. I go through phases where I'm maybe a little more spiritual and I'll do meditation. I'll go through phases where I'm feeling a little bit more draw energy and I need to lift weight. I give myself that space, specifically in the mornings. I do believe in waking up early. Every day I'm up by five. I like to start my day in, not in perspective of ahead of everybody else, but in a time where there's quietness and there's kind of ability to reflect and to feel like when everybody, when the rest of the world starts their day, I'm already kind of in the day and, and have a, a clear slate behind me. Is there a vision that you have that you would like, this is where I'm wanting to go, whether in your personal life or in your business life or the combination of the two of those? My personal life, I think, is definitely my business life uh, intertwined. I think I see myself being more physically and, and professionally in Latin America, doing real work down there. I think that there's this feeling I still have of extraction, that we're there just kind of extracting product. And yeah, we're there a lot, and I'm flying to Latin America continuously, but there's a feeling of needing to be there, needing to kind of just live and and mm. go back to my roots to some degree. You know, as far as visions, it's funny because a lot of people say a good business person needs their exit strategy. And I don't really put that in front of myself because I think I learned so early on that if you focus on your values and really what drives you, what where you feel good and at your best, it'll steer you in directions that you may never have planned. I really thought I was going to go to Wall Street, you know, when I was in college and I was mm-hmm. going to be, and then all of a sudden your gut tells you something different and you follow your gut and it takes you to really the place where you feel your best and where you feel your best, in my opinion, is where you do your your best. And so the vision concept is hard on me because my vision is to wake up every day and pursue the best of myself and try to get to where I want to be in the big picture. And where that goes, I don't really know. I do want to be in Latin America more. And I'm there a lot already. I'm probably there 30 to 35% of my time, but mm. I'd like to see myself more in Latin America as well. Would it be going home, going back to Central America or any particular part? Uh... Nicaragua has always had a special place for me. Mm. You know, my dad was from there, but we I think more a bigger part of my years were spent there. And it was such a crazy time to be down there. A big aspect of who I am is the realization of perspective. You know, when I was a kid, we didn't go to school for a year because there was a war. And every night you hear gunshots and some nights you have to crawl under your bed because it got near the house. But one of the more fun things was in the morning you wake up and you collect bullet shells. We had all these bullet shell collections and I was a little kid and if you got something different than an AK-47, which is like the, you know, run of the mill, it was something that had trading value. And I remember coming to the States and telling people this and they looked at me like I was crazy. But like I said, to me as a kid, it was normal to me. In that moment of seeing that difference of the American childhood versus the childhood I knew and thought was normal, I realized the power of perspective. Because in my perspective, I lived just a fun, normal childhood that, yeah, it was a little hectic, but I didn't recognize it to be so out of the norm. And I think that gave me a sense of you can really harness perspective to take you to the place where you want to be in life and to really see life for the better, no matter what's going on around you. I really appreciate you coming, Martin Mayorga, to have this conversation with us today. Anything you'd like to share? Any reflections for our listeners just about your journey? Well, I think a big one is awareness. I think I was blessed enough to see two very different ends of the spectrum growing Mm. up in these countries and then coming to a very privileged area. And I think those of us who are now in the privileged lifestyles that we have, it would be so meaningful if everybody could understand the power we have on a daily basis just by being consumers. With so much information out there, and unfortunately a lot of misinformation, especially in my industry, we can really harness 
our everyday decisions to make major changes in people's lives because it doesn't take much, unfortunately, in these countries. One of the things I try to do is every time I go to Latin America, I try to bring groups, I try to bring people, and mm -hmm. I think seeing it firsthand, and not in a way of feeling sorry for anybody or having right. sympathy, it's more just appreciation, and appreciation for things that people do for us, and also appreciation for, like I said, the impact of this leftover colonialism and this systemic model that's created, but I think just for people to understand the power we have as consumers on others. That to me would be the ultimate achievement, but it's a tough thing to really educate consumers on, unfortunately. It is, isn't it? And yet things can change very quickly in unexpected ways. You know, the changed attitude towards smoking, for example, over a period of relatively few years. When shifts come, they can happen quickly. And I would hope, I mean, yeah, you can't, I agree with you, you can't, you can't, it's hard to really tell how you make those kind of macro changes. You know, as you were saying, each of us maybe does what we can to help in our daily activities, in our consumption, if we can have a role in educating people. But I'm just really appreciate everything that you're doing and that Myoga Organics is doing. It sounds like a potential, a model that really does challenge the existing model in a way that can really benefit so many both sides of the wealth and poverty line and the US and Latin America and the rest of the world line as well. So really appreciate you coming and being with us today, Martin Mayorga. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you.